The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we're back. We've done it. This this is the Curbsiders, of course. Paul's not gonna Paul's not gonna respond to me. This is the Curbsiders. Tonight we are talking about women's hematology. We talked about uh, bleeding, heavy menstrual bleeding. We talked about clotting, when it's safe to prescribe contraception, what types, and what kind of anticoagulation you should prescribe. Lots of stuff that I really didn't know much about, Paul. So this was really a practice changing episode. I wanted people to know that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to claim free CME credit. Paul, before we introduce our wonderful guest host for tonight, can you tell the audience, what do we do on the Curbsiders? Well, it's, I, I should point out, you know, we'll notice that Stuart's not here with us and I just, the energy is completely different. Like ordinarily you come in hot and like, it's just, I think you're trying <laughs> to just power through. So Stuart doesn't have a chance to interrupt you. So just to hear you sort of laid back and talking about a topic and it's just, it's, it's a different energy. I'm not saying it's a better one, but it's different. In any case, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, we have an amazing guest host. Um, you are all familiar with our, um, was she our chief of perioperative medicine now? Is that the yes, official title? Yes, Dr. official. Glasser. There's a press um, release, Paul. Come on. Yeah, no, that's the, the Times. Right the press release and everything. <laughs> I, forgive me. There was a tweet. <laughs> that's a press release for us. Um, but we have Dr. O'Glasser, uh, who helped, well, not only helped, who, who produced this episode and, and sort of spearheaded this. So I'm going to pass the mic to her and let her talk about our guests and sort of uh, summarize what we learned tonight. Perfect. So we had a fantastic and high-yield conversation with our guest, Dr. Bethany Samuelson-Bano, who is a hematology nerd, women's health advocate, and proud wife and mama uh, from my institution, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. She's an academic non-malignant hematologist with a passion for the treatment and evaluation of bleeding and clotting disorders in women and menstruating patients. She's dedicated to improving quality of life in these patients suffering from heavy menstrual bleeding and ensuring that all women have access to the information and tools they need to take charge of their health. And as Matt alluded to, we covered um, quite a thorough comprehensive spectrum of women's health meets hematology themes from heavy bleeding to abnormal bleeding, which tend to be the same thing clotting uh, disorders, management of contraceptive contraceptive options. And we're also really able to uh, highlight some big themes, including sexism and misogyny uh, that have led to suboptimal care over the millennium for women and w- with regards to women's health and menstrual health. And we can all be uh, sad that Stuart wasn't here to talk about non-anemic iron deficiency, but uh, we're, I'm sure he knew that we were talking about it. Every time the word ferritin got uttered. <laughs> Every time. Bethany, really excited to have you on the show. Can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I am a wife. I'm a mama. I am a benign hematologist who's really passionate about women's health issues. And this is my first podcast, so I'm super excited. I'm sure this is the first of many podcasts. Everyone has a podcast these days. So <laughs> I, I imagine you'll be starting one within the next couple of weeks yourself. I, I love it. <laughs> I think a question we we often ask is, um, even though I will make no guarantees I'll ever actually get around to reading it, but, but I am amassing a pile of book recommendations. Do you have any book that you think uh, physicians should read? doesn't even have to be medical. So it's been a while since I've had a t- had a chance to read something other than a journal article. And so this is a little bit cheesy, but um, I actually really love The Emperor of All Maladies. It came out when I was like interviewing for residency. And I mean, it's really just easy, luxurious read. And I think it's just so important to remember where we come from in the history of medicine and how far we've come. And, you know, history repeats itself. We make the same mistakes over and over again, sadly. So that's that's still one of my favorites. Excellent choice. Thank you. All right. I get to ask a question now, too. 
What's the best advice you've ever received as a learner? And I say that as a learner because I think even as teachers or as faculty, we are lifelong learners. So true. I think it's just knowing that um, everybody makes mistakes and also the idea that sort of (laughs) Your, you know, levels of confidence and knowledge can vary and what you never want to be is like high confidence, low knowledge. That's, that's really scary. Um, And in general, the more of an expert you are, the less you think, you know, so just, I think humility, humility Mm -hmm. in learning, I think is really key. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's actually going to segue really well to some of the challenges uh, with regard to the clinical topic we're going to explore together. Hey, audience, how are you sleeping lately? How's your mattress? I bet you could use a new mattress. That's why I want to tell you about Birch. I've had a Birch mattress for almost six months now, and my sleep has just really improved. It's comfortable. I fall asleep. I stay asleep. I wake up feeling ready to go for my day. My wife loves the mattress too. She says she feels like we're sleeping in a cloud. And Birch mattresses are organic, non-toxic mattresses made right here in America and shipped straight to your door. They have three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. Plus, they have a 25-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up for you, but I know you're going to love it, so what are you waiting for? Right now, Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. So Matt, should I take it away with the first case? I think that's good. All right. I'm going to start with our first case from Cashlack Memorial. So Ida Lowe is a 24-year-old who's referred to hematology for iron deficiency, which was found on an evaluation for fatigue. On that initial evaluation, she told her PCP that her periods were, air quotes, normal. So the referral indicates that there's a concern for an unknown etiology of her iron deficiency. When you sit down and talk with her, she says that her periods have been, again, air quotes, normal since she started menstruating at age 11. And she notes on the the intake sheet, the intake form under the line, any abnormal bleeding history, question mark. She writes, question mark, question mark, question mark. My dentist says my gums always bleed at my six-month checkups, but that's because I don't floss enough. And then under family history, she wrote, I don't think so, but my mom and sister say my periods are just like theirs. So I'm going to start us off by just laying some ground rules. How do we define normal, and again, air quotes, we're on a podcast when I'm doing a lot of air quotes, normal versus (laughs) abnormal uterine or menstrual bleeding? Like what's normal? What's average? What's abnormal? That's a great question. So um, interestingly enough, we have a number for normal, which is 53 milliliters of blood loss per cycle, which is obviously meaningless in our clinical practice. But fortunately, people a lot smarter than uh, me actually did a study where they actually measured the amount of menstrual blood loss, and they actually correlated clinical symptoms with menstrual blood loss of greater than 80 milliliters, which is our former definition of heavy menstrual bleeding. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that definition is changing. But in that particular study, they found that uh, women who change their protection more often than every kind of hour or two on their heaviest days had heavy bleeding. It was a study from the UK. So they found that women who pass clots, I think greater than a 50 pence piece, which is about uh, an inch. If they pass clots greater than an inch, <laughs> that's yeah, it's, it, it was a great study. It's called Menorage one. I highly suggest that you look it up and they found low ferritin. Also, all of those things are associated with heavy menstrual bleeding. Uh, so if a patient reports those things to you, uh, it means there's probably something going on. You know, in the in the bigger picture, you know, it's pretty normal for periods to start at 11. They typically end around age 51. Although, you know, this thing that we call perimenopause, where bleeding is irregular and sometimes heavy and sometimes light, can actually start 10 years before menopause. So I get a lot of women in my clinic who will be like, I'm only 45. It's too early. This abnormal bleeding can't be. And it can be. It can be. Not that you don't work it up, but that can happen. 
And then the average duration is about two to seven days. So also if you get a patient who's reporting more than seven to 10 days of bleeding, that's abnormal. Bleeding between periods is abnormal. Any postmenopausal bleeding is abnormal. Bleeding after sex is typically abnormal as well. How, so what are the, if you had to pick a couple questions that we should ask, if we're like in a busy visit, someone's talking to us, what, which question should we ask to, to clarify if it's heavy bleeding? So interestingly enough, what I usually say, and this is, this case is a perfect example of why it doesn't always work is actually <laughs> asking a patient. Uh, they've actually shown if, if you ask a woman, if her he- periods are moderate, heavy, or very heavy, and she says very heavy, that's actually pretty reliable the exception being patients like this who have an abnormal family history. So usually I ask on your heaviest days, how often do you change tampons and and pads? Do you wear a pad and tampon together? And then I'm sorry, I forgot to mention iron deficiency. Iron deficiency is always also a sign. So how often do you change your pad or tampon? Do you have a history of iron deficiency? Uh, Do you think your periods are very heavy? I think those would be kind of the three highest yield questions that I would ask in a busy clinic day. But can we can we get a little bit more basic? Um, because I feel like, and I, I know Abby's been uh, champing at the bit to talk about this too. I, I I think that generally internists do a fairly awful job of just taking a menstrual history in general. Like I think the question is, are your periods okay? And then you grit your teeth and cross your fingers and hope the patient says okay, so you can sort of move on to the next step, which is probably not the best way to do it. So I mean, I, I think the quantifying and sort of talking about the heavy periods or abnormal periods is healthy, but or, or helpful. But do you mind? just kind of taking us through your basic menstrual history. I feel like, I know that seems very fundamental, but I also think that'd be a very helpful thing because we just, we don't discuss it probably nearly enough. Yeah. Well, and Paul, just to piggyback off of that, I think one of the articles I read ahead of time, which has, I think this is the one that had the the jaw drop title, like sexism in women's health or sex or sexism in like menstrual care, I think reported that less than 10% of women had a full menstrual history documented on a well woman annual exam. I a hundred percent believe that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's so true. And and I was actually emailing with Avi before this and saying that, you know, when I left my internal medicine tra- training, even through my hematology training, I was totally uncomfortable with it. I had no idea it was normal or abnormal. And I just sort of found myself in this interesting space where I'm really passionate about it. So honestly, you know, my menstrual history, I just, the first question I ask is I just say, tell me about your periods. And I don't know if they just can tell that I'm like, you know, I mean, maybe abnormally excited to hear about it because it is like my area of passion. But if you can just be like, okay with it, just be comfortable right. with it and just say, tell me about your periods. And I am shocked, honestly, how many times women just like, they pour out the textbook answers. They'll be like, well, on the first or second day, I have to change my pad every three hours. And they actually will do that for you if you just give that open-ended question. But if they don't give that open-ended question, then I say, you know, on your heaviest day, how often do you change your pad or tampon? And sometimes I'll even get more specific and ask if they wear a pad and tampon at the same time, because some women with heavy periods will do that. I'll ask, you know, do you have a history of iron deficiency anemia? How long do your periods last? How many days are they? Uh, Do you pass clots? And I honestly really do ask all of these questions. And I sometimes ask if people in their family have a history of abnormal periods as well. I think that can be useful. And then, you know, what I mentioned earlier about we're changing the definition of heavy menstrual bleeding to actually be something that interferes with a woman's quality of life. So do you miss work or school because of your periods? You know, does it interfere with your social activity? Does it interfere with your quality of life? Uh, and I'll often ask, like, what have you, have you tried anything to manage your periods in the past? And sort of what, a- occasionally I'll get to kind of like, what would your ideal be? Because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, because like, we can make those things stop. Like, you don't have to have a period every month. And some women are like all about that. And some women really feel the need to have a period. So that's usually kind of the things that I walk through. I don't necessarily go into when did you have your first period and stuff like that in an actual menstrual history. I don't, that's not typically helpful in, in my area. I do ask about if they've had past pregnancies, I ask if they had postpartum hemorrhage, that can be useful information. And if I'm at all worried, you know, usually I'll just very quickly, if I'm doing a workup and a woman does have a positive, you know, flags for heavy menstrual bleeding, I'll ask about other kinds of bleeding. So nosebleeds, you know, red or black in the stool, history of bleeding after surgeries, things like that. And most of the time, the answers to those are no. The bruising question can get pretty tricky. And so honestly, I don't always ask that (laughs) because particularly if a patient's a little bit on the anxious side, because it just like makes them overthink. 
but I do sort of run through those questions. And then as a hematologist, if those are positive, then that takes me in a totally different direction. But I think it's good, you know, to know about 20% of women with heavy menstrual bleeding will have an underlying bleeding disorder. And, you know, most of those are going to be actually kind of like weird platelet things that we don't really fully understand from that study that showed the 20%. The most common bleeding disorder is, is of course, von Willebrand's. We see bleeding, more bleeding than we used to appreciate in women who we used to call carriers of hemophilia. So, you know, you can see those, but the vast majority of women with heavy menstrual bleeding will not actually have a bleeding disorder. So you can ask the basic screening questions. Those are the things that I usually ask. So is there anything specific about this case that is already raising your level of concern? Maybe like what else would you ask this woman who's given us some interesting things on her check-in sheets? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, iron deficiency is a flag. So in a woman, you know, who is, you know, the, the age at which we start to think, could this be something else is probably around kind of 40, but in a young woman who, you know, doesn't have a recent history of trauma or something like that, like iron deficiency is going to be menstruation kind of until proven otherwise. So that already boom, she already has one potential sign of heavy menstrual bleeding. And this yeah, this happens all the time. And I love when there's a fellow in my clinic and this comes up because it's such a great teaching moment when they say their periods are normal and it's just like my family. Well, bleeding disorders run in families, specifically von Willebrand's disease. So I actually never let a woman get away with saying her periods are normal. That's never enough for me. I always have to ask more questions because, you know, if, if, you're, if your mom and all of your sisters were changing their tampons every 30 minutes for their periods, well, then you probably do think that's normal. And on the other hand, I'll, I'll have, this is more rare, but I'll have a patient say her, her periods are just horrendous. And she like changes her pad every eight hours. And I'm sure it's miserable for her, but it's like not in the realm of heavy menstrual bleeding. So you got to get in there with the details, but the gum bleeding can be a little bit tricky. Cause I definitely do see gum bleeding from gingivitis, but you know, it is another symptom of bleeding. And what I would really get in and ask her is hopefully she's had a procedure of some kind in the past. That's the beauty of working in adult medicine and not pediatrics is by the time they get to me, they've usually had some kind of bleeding challenge. And so my favorite question is, have you ever had a tonsillectomy? Because if you have a tonsillectomy and don't bleed, you probably don't have a bleeding disorder. I just saw my first case in my entire career of somebody who didn't have bleeding after a, well, they didn't remember they had bleeding after a tonsillectomy and had a bleeding disorder, but it's very rare. So that's a good bleeding history question. But I would ask her a few more questions. She's, you know, just this idea that the whole family has heavy periods sort of piques my interest. Can you tell us about what your illness script would be for Von Willebrand? I haven't thought about that in, in a while. Probably I should have. You're saying it's common. So I'm, I'm putting my shame out there. It's the most common bleeding disorder. It only affects 1% of the population. So zero shame. But the, you know, the script is really mucocutaneous bleeding. So gum bleeding, heavy periods, epistaxis, GI bleeding, bruising, bleeding after procedures. Family history, so the most common type of von Willebrand's disease is autosomal dominance. So usually there will be a parent with symptoms. So that's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's very distinct from hemophilia where we see in men joint bleeds as the, the primary presentation, uh, but it can overlap a bit with platelet disorders and things like that. You mentioned like hemophilia carriers in women, like what's your illness script for that? Because I think that's something that has very frequent, like has not been on my radar as an internist since my training. Totally. And so that really is a family history of bleeding. So it is an X-linked disorder. So every daughter of a man with hemophilia is an obligate carrier. So those are the easy ones. You know, they have it, but there is, I think it's about a 5% rate of spontaneous mutation. So it's also possible that a woman would have it when her would be a carrier when her father wasn't. And then of course, you know, other male relatives. And we're just finally appreciating that women who are quote unquote carriers bleed more than women who aren't carriers. And, you know, it's, it's an X-linked disease, right? So half of the extra X chromosomes get turned off. Like every cell, you either turn off the good one or you turn off the variant one. And you would think, you know, the beautiful thing about hematology is 100% is always normal. It makes math super easy. 
So you would think if two normal chromosomes get you 100%, then half the time you're having an abnormal chromosome, you're probably going to get 50%. And that's generally true, but there's a huge wide range. So it can go down to like 10% or up over 100%. You know, if you get something like Turner syndrome, you can actually, you know, have textbook hemophilia, severe hemophilia in a woman. And so it's really the family history that I lean on. And then they don't typically present with joint bleeds per se, although there's some data that now show that women who are, again, quote, air quote, uh, hemophilia carriers will actually have abnormal joint MRIs later in life. So probably uh, what we would call micro bleeds or bleeds they don't notice, but bleeding after procedures and things like that, we also see with hemophilia carriers, definitely heavy periods. Um, women with hemophilia B can have severe postpartum hemorrhage factor eight goes up in pregnancy. So we don't usually see primary postpartum hemorrhage in hemophilia carriers. But as those factor levels go down, you know, our bodies are beautifully increase all of our clotting factors as we approach delivery, which is great because bleeding used to be and in many parts of the world still is the number one cause of death. But those levels start to re uh, reduce to normal when we get even three, four days out. So women who are hemophilia carriers or have von Willebrand disease will often start picking up their bleeding day three or four. And my personal experience, this is not evidence-based, is they always come in, they tell me they bled for 12 weeks after they had their baby. It's always 12. I don't know why. <laughs> normal is less than six, but they always say 12. So that's another, I think, part of the illness script for uh, von Willebrand disease, and then also definitely seen in hemophilia carriers. But not every hemophilia carrier will bleed. So if family history is is crucial to your your assessment of patients, um, you, the, this patient that we we're talking about has has maternal and a sister's history at her fingertips. But it seems from my reading and, and from personal experiences that discussing menstrual bleeding can be so stigmatizing and, and many people don't want to talk about it or don't know what their mom or their grandmother or their sisters have experienced. So how, what are some of the tools in your tool belt for chipping away at that stigma or it just both in, for individual patients in an exam room or sort of across the board for this clinical challenge? Yeah. So, you know, I know the stigma is real and I like hear it and I read it and all that. I, the women in my clinic have always been very open with me. And I think it's just because I'm so comfortable with it. Like talking about periods and tampons to me is like talking about my morning coffee. And I think what that means is like, we have to talk about it with each other to get comfortable with it, right? We're not going to just like magically become comfortable walking in the room and, and talking to a patient about it if we're not comfortable talking to each other about it. So I think that's the first step is just to get really comfortable with it, just to get really open, you know, and I think it helps that I'm a woman. I think that women are more comfortable talking to women and that's, you know, just sort of something that I'm sorry, uh, guys, that you kind of have to a little extra, extra hard for you, but you know, if it feels like it's awkward to her, you know, just acknowledge it. Just say like, you know, I know this can be tough to talk about, but this is a part of your health. It's a normal function of your body. Just like every other function of your body. I feel totally comfortable talking about it. And I want you to know that you can tell me whatever, you know, whatever you need to, um, and just sort of acknowledging it and being open about it. And you, we'll link to it in the show notes. You had a fantastic editorial on the subject. And I think you had a line along the, like, along the lines of, for this being a women's health sensitive topic, there are 3 million phosphodiesterase inhibitor prescriptions issued a year. So like, yeah. we can have other sensitive conversations in medicine. I just thought that was just, yeah, just mic drop. And I, I think you even wrote yourself that we are so cisgender man focused. Yeah. In medicine. And I, I actually, I do want to use that as a quick springboard. We're talking about women using the word women. Should we be using the term patient with uterus? Like what's really in 2021, how should we be structuring our vocabulary in a patient-centered way so that we're not being too narrow-minded with the patients who might be coming to us with iron deficiency or, or um, other hematologic conditions? Yeah. I don't think that there's actually like a, a preferred term. I, when I write, I just say menstruating individuals instead of saying when I just menstruate. And then, you know, if I have, you know, I have multiple transgender patients in my clinic and I just say, are you menstruating? Are you having periods? And they say yes or no. And then we kind of move on from there. So I think, yeah, 
it's something that we're so used to saying women and periods, it does take a little bit of extra thoughtfulness, but I think it's bodily function. Like it's, it's menstruation, just menstruation. And I, I do think there's, I mean, there's obviously there, there, well, I should say there can be potential discomfort just in the subject matter itself. But I, and I think part of it is also the fact that if you ask and find something abnormal, you don't know what to do with it. I feel like a lot of the training is, it's, is not great in terms of what to do with this information. So if you do elicit something that sounds like a bleeding diathesis or heavy periods or abnormal urinary bleeding, you're like, oh no, (laughs) now (laughs) now I have to do something with that information. So like there's part of it's the subject matter, which for sure there's a lot of um, inherent sexism in all this discussion. But also I think the fact that if you you find it, then you're stuck with it. And I think obviously that's, this episode will help with that conversation a little bit. So I, I guess probably a lot. So let's let's say, for instance, we we do uncover something. So we get uh, the patient does give us a, a history of fairly heavy periods. Once we actually get her to quantify a little bit, and maybe more above and beyond the gum bleeding. Yeah, I had my tooth taken out. Man, that thing didn't stop bleeding for weeks, and my dentist didn't know what was going on. And yeah, actually, now that you mention it, when I do have my periods afterwards, I I, you know, I feel I just I can't. I have no energy. I'm maybe having a little bit shorter breath. And so you're you start thinking, okay, well something's off here. And where, I, where I'm going with all this is what should we have done by the time we get the patient to you? So as mm-hmm. an internist, in terms of initial workup, where you start to think, this feels like a bleeding issue to me, um, probably I should have this person see a specialist. Is there any sort of groundwork we should have laid initially? What sort of testing should we do and where where should we start? Yeah, that is such a great question. And so kind of my first pass labs are always PT, PTT, and a Von Willebrand panel. And so in our hospital, we have a panel, it's Von Willebrand antigen, which is the actual, you know, the amount of Von Willebrand you have in your blood, Von Willebrand activity, which is how well it works. And factor eight is included in that panel. So if you send those basic things before somebody comes to me, I'm going to be super happy. There are some tricks. So all of the clotting factors assays are kind of tricky to do, uh, a little bit time sensitive and levels can vary a lot in patients. So if you have a patient who's super stressed, they just like ran up the stairs or something, their Von Willebrand levels can look normal, even though they're not. So I almost always send them twice anyway. And the other, you know, and often actually having them drawn at a reference lab is super helpful. Uh, there was actually a, I don't know if it's published yet, but, uh, there's some data about, um, you know, differences in, in labs and diagnoses. If you draw them at a reference lab versus having to ship them from an outside lab. So sometimes they do, it's ideal if they can be done at a reference lab is what I'm saying, but we may wind up repeating it anyway, just because there's a lot of false positives and false negatives, but those are the basic workups. Well, for someone like Ida, Ida Lowe, we send the PT, the PTT, the Von Willebrand factor. I guess if it if it doesn't come back with anything positive and she just has heavy menstrual bleeding and she's iron deficient, what kind of things can we try as an internist to help with the menstrual bleeding, like the heavy the heavy bleeding that she's having? Yeah. So the first thing is always treat the iron deficiency. And then, so there are a variety of options and it really kind of depends on your comfort level. So it's never wrong to send a patient like this to a gynecologist, never wrong, because they may want to do additional workup. And I swear I am uh, not paid by the makers of the levonorgestrel IUD, but everybody in women's health loves it. Um, It's like God's gift to women. It's amazing for controlling periods. So because that's my favorite I usually just send them to gynecology anyway, even myself as somebody who loves talking about periods because I can't put one of those in. So never wrong to send them to gynecology. If your patient really doesn't want to go to gynecology, you know, there are a number of options. So American College of Gynecology, kind of their first line is either tranexamic acid, which is 1300 milligrams POTID, works wonders. I think it's like 20%. It'll decrease menstrual bleeding by it does not cause clots. It does not cause clots. It does not cause clots. So do not worry about it causing clots. Tell your patient it won't cause clots because she'll go on the internet and she'll read that it causes clots. It doesn't. Uh, we give it to women with postpartum hemorrhage and there's zero evidence that even in that setting it increases clots. So get super comfortable with tranexamic acid. That's probably going to be your best tool as an internist. And that's the one that I prescribe most as a hematologist. You know, the other first line therapy is birth control pills. And so, you know, usually combined ones. And I think there's only a couple that are like technically like FDA approved for it, but people use kind of whatever they're comfortable with. And so you can prescribe them, you know, with the placebo period, without the placebo period, using them continuously can stop periods altogether. And that's okay. It's okay to not have periods as long as the endometrial lining isn't being built up. So with the IUD, with birth control, 
you're not, you know, increasing the risk for hyperplasia or anything like that. So you can prescribe that continuously. So those would be kind of the things that you would do as an internist. And then there are other, you could actually do Depo-Provera if you're comfortable with that as an internist and you have like the facilities to give that patient the injection every 90 days. And then beyond that, you know, next, uh, etonogestrel implant can reduce bleeding, uh, the levonorgestrel IUD, never the copper IUD. The copper IUD is just creates heinous bleeding, more bleeding, irregular bleeding. It's awful. Don't go that way. Um, so, and those, those are things that you wind up in a gynecology office for. I guess uh, one, one follow-up about transexamic acid, is it expensive? Because I recently had this come up. I was telling Avi about this. I saw a patient at Cashlack in the recent past and I was looking it up and it said NSAIDs are something you could try, which I was like, how does that work? And then the other one was transactamic acid. I'm like, I've never prescribed that. Is that going to cost my patient a million dollars? So if you could answer those two things. Yeah, great questions. And you're right. NSAIDs do actually decrease it. And I don't think we fully understand why. I mean, obviously it doesn't like improve your ability to clot. But I think, you know, some idea about, you know, maybe reducing some of the, the contraction in the uterus. I don't know. I don't think anybody fully understands that. And tranexamic acid. So if you prescribe the generic and not the brand name, it it's usually pretty reasonable. I have a couple of patients whose insurances are really stubborn and they'll only give them five days out of every 30 because that's technically how it was studied. But some women bleed for 10 days. And so actually the good RX app can get people pretty reasonable prices. So I think one of my patients pays like $30 for a month, which isn't, you know, it's not your $4 Walmart copay, but it's not 200 bucks either. So that's, that's an option that we found to help out. Yeah. I mean, for quality of life, 30 bucks a month, if they have it, I imagine that seems like a good deal to them. <laughs> I'm sure. They, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's an excellent answer. Uh, so with Avi, do we have more to the case with Miss Ida Lowe? Uh, how does how do you want to resolve this one? I think we have we have more cases to go through. Yeah, I think we've reached a really good resolution on this one. I think we've we've touched on a lot of clinical pearls, sort of broached the subject that that heavy menstrual bleeding, iron deficiency can really negatively affect quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll we'll put the links in the show notes. There was another just jaw dropper, very eye opening piece on like the misogyny of iron deficiency. Um, that I highly recommend the audience reads. But we have we're going to swing to the other end of the uh, the the spectrum of hematology and and actually talk about clots, not in the context of tranexamic acid. <laughs> Which um, um, quick question: Does that cause clots? <laughs> <laughs> like the bane of my existence, the patients always come in and they're like, "My doctor said that would cause clots." I'm like, no, it's it's a rumor. It's a dirty rotten rumor. <laughs> I, I don't do women's like gyne health, but this preoperative medicine clinician loves tranexamic acid. So you get a vote from me. It's like a toss up between IV iron and tranexamic acid for my second favorite drug after the levonorgestrel Ooh. IUD. That is quite the trifecta. I know. That is quite the trifecta. All right. <laughs> Our sponsor today is Green Chef, and you've probably heard me talk about this before in the show. I feel guilty about not doing most of the cooking at home, but I actually enjoy the cooking when I get to do it. And Green Chef makes it easy for me. Most of the meals take 25, 30 minutes to prepare. It's actually a bonding experience because my kids love to help prepare the meals, and we've done this on several occasions. Our most recent box included Peruvian chicken with ahi verde, Greek pork couscous bowls, and Korean beef with noodle stir-fry. My kids devoured these meals, especially my oldest who had like four helpings of each. He's got like a Michael Phelps diet or something. And Green Chef's great because it lets you choose from a lot of easy-to-follow recipes, and they will accommodate your eating style. If you're keto, if you're paleo, if you're vegan or vegetarian, or if you just want to eat more of a balanced, healthy lifestyle, if you're like Paul and you're trying to stop eating his quote, hot garbage, then this is perfect for you. Everything is hand-picked. They have organic veggies, high-quality proteins. It's delivered right to your door. Of course, it's pre-measured. And it's a sustainable meal kit. They offset 100% of the direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box so you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. Go to greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb 100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Once again, greenchef.com slash curb 100 and use code 
CURB100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. I'm going to move us on to case two, unless um, unless Matt or Paul want to throw in a wonderful historical pearl from, from Stuart, who's not with us tonight. <laughs> well, this was, I, I can't remember which, this one of the articles for the pre-reading had a quote in there that iron deficiency was first described as chlorosis and a cause of hysteria in women, and the initial treatment was iron filings in cold wine. So uh, the, the treatment doesn't sound that bad, but the, uh, the rest of it sounds <laughs> I mean, pretty awful. Listen, cold wine is kind of tacky, if we're being honest. So like, none, none of it's great. Yeah, and you know, just speaking of misogyny and sexism in, in women's health. But anyway, moving on to case two. <laughs> Pivot. Um, Get a Clot is a 39-year-old patient who's diagnosed with a proximal vein DVT. After breaking her leg on vacation, uh, she did the COVID-safe ski trip. Unfortunately, did not listen to all of uh, the wilderness medicine episode uh, ahead of time, but she did fly home to recuperate and then was diagnosed with a DVT. She has um, regular menses every 28 days. So your fellow, your residents uh, did their due diligence. They listened to case one. They got a really good menstrual history. Her periods last for four days and are truly normal, um, air qu- not air quotes, normal. She had a tubal ligation after her last pregnancy, so she has not pursued any other forms of contraception or menses control, so she's she's not been interested in an IUD or other hormonal agents. And she's concerned that while she's on anticoagulation for the DVT, that she's going to have heavy menses that interfere with quality of life or ability to go to work. As her maternal grandmother had a hysterectomy decades ago um, for, air quotes, heavy menstrual bleeding. So... Let's just lay this out there. What is the risk of heavy menstrual bleeding while on therapeutic anticoagulation? That is a great question. And so there's not a lot of good studies on this. Unfortunately, there was one fairly decent study uh, before DOACS with warfarin and actually showed that 70% of women had heavy menstrual bleeding on warfarin. Back to the misogyny, our modern trials of DOACs don't really consider heavy menstrual bleeding in their bleeding, right? So you have to have either major bleeding or clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So unless you are getting a blood transfusion or having an extra clinical visit and treatment for your heavy menstrual bleeding, it's not going to get noticed in these studies. So we really don't know. You know, if we look at retrospective data, in which case all we can really do is, again, did you get treatment of some kind? Probably about a third of women on rivaroxaban will wind up having heavy menstrual bleeding, maybe somewhat less with apixaban and warfarin. And by heavy menstrual bleeding, again, I mean something that actually came to the attention and came to attention and made it into the medical chart. So it is quite common. And unfortunately, we're really terrible about asking about this. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at an anticoagulation clinic note from a patient who's 35 and menstruating and it says no bleeding. I'm like, she's having bleeding. It's just (laughs) not something that you asked about. (laughs) We'll do better. We'll do audience. You got to do better. Come on. (laughs) And I I feel like I've heard, I I forget who I heard it from, but based on the half-lives of Rivaroxaban versus Abixaban, because Rivaroxaban is daily dosing. So it's going to be a higher peak, lower trough versus abixaban that there like there there is more breakthrough bleeding on river roxaban is that mechanism like so if you have a woman who is menstruating would that steer you towards one dawak over the other yeah it's a great question and honestly we don't always get to choose right a lot of times the insurance companies get to choose but i do have the conversation and you know it does really seem like the rates of bleeding are higher with river roxaban it's not been checked in a randomized control trial, but it's pretty consistent in retrospective studies. And I don't think we fully understand why it is. Interestingly enough, the half-lives of these agents really aren't hugely different. It's just how they did the studies. So we assume that it's because there's a higher peak with rivaroxaban, but we don't know for certain. But I have a conversation and I say, you know, uh, you're probably going to have a higher risk of having heavy menstrual bleeding with rivaroxaban. On the other hand, if you are a young, healthy woman who's not used to taking medications, how easy is it going to be for you to be uh, adherent to a twice daily medication with a Pixaban? That's the downside, right? 
So I have a conversation about that. And I think the most important thing is to just inform a woman about like what's normal and what's abnormal and say, if you have these things, let me know right away. In a patient like this, you know, this is very clearly a provoked clot. She's only going to have three months of anticoagulation. So, you know, unless she needed it for another reason, I don't think it's going to be worth doing some kind of, we call it LARC, long-acting reversible contraception, which is uh, the IUD or the uh, subdermal implant. That doesn't necessarily make sense for her. So I would probably just tell her to keep an eye out. I always check a ferritin up front too, when I'm prescribing anticoagulation in a menstruating individual, because there's a good, I mean, everybody in my clinic is iron deficient. Now, granted, I am a hematologist, so it's probably (laughs) not a representative sample, but it's more common than you think. So always check a ferritin, try to tank them up, tell them to keep an eye on it. Give me a call. If she really doesn't think she can take a pixaban twice a day and she has had normal periods in the past and it's only three months, I think rofuroxaban is fine for a patient like this. And and let's say this was a recurrent DVT or, or unprovoked and, and it's going to be now lifelong therapy. Like, would you offer the, offer the LARC up front? We, she's in her late thirties, which is still young in my book. Um, if she was closer to menopause, like, would you sort of factor in how long this might be a problem for? We all love tranexamic acid. Like, would you add tranexamic acid or just offer the LARC? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I would probably offer the LARC because that's going to be kind of the most convenient in the long term. So if it's going to go on for a long time, I think that makes the most sense. You know, the, the tough thing with tranexamic acid, even though I don't know if you heard me saying it doesn't cause clots, but it could, <laughs> you know, it does stop fibrinolysis and we want fibrinolysis, particularly in the early stages of a clot. So I typically don't prescribe it in at least the month after somebody's had a clot, In people on chronic anticoagulation, I have prescribed it for heavy menstrual bleeding. That's totally off label. I have colleagues who do it. I have some colleagues who don't, but I think that would be potentially an option. I don't know that I would necessarily want somebody on tranexamic acid for a super long period of time if I thought they were at risk of recurrence for other reasons. So I saw a patient at Cashlack the other day who had a cancer associated thrombosis and was on rivaroxaban and was having super heavy bleeding. And I wasn't thrilled with tranexamic acid for that particular patient because I think she's at high risk of having a repeat clot all by herself. Tranexamic acid is not going to increase that risk of clot, but it could potentially make that clot worse because it's interfering with fibrinolysis. So you have to be careful how you use it in a patient who's had a a clot. But I think, you know, Lark for somebody who's going to be on it indefinitely. And I wouldn't necessarily do that. You know, if she doesn't have a history of heavy menstrual bleeding, I wouldn't do it immediately. I would let her have a cycle and see what it's like before, you know, I I necessarily offered anything. And if it's something that she feels is really unsustainable, then have the conversation about Lark then. And one thing, you know, if you have a patient who, you know, this particular patient wasn't on OCPs, but if you have, or or contraceptive pills, if you have a patient who's on oral contraceptive pills and she develops a clot and she's on anticoagulation, you don't actually have to stop those oral contraceptives as long as she's anticoagulated. Again, this isn't RCT level data, but, you know, uh, they did look at recurrence of clots in women who were on some of these DOAC trials. And it was no different between patients on hormonal therapy and not on hormonal therapy. So if they come to you on those, you can continue them. If you stop them, she's going to have a horrendous period. And of course, with that, she you might run the risk of her not taking her anticoagulant and not telling you about it, which is always a bad thing. I just wanted to... That that point when I was I was looking through your slides ahead of time, and that really struck me because I think a lot of us would just say, oh, this person had a clot, they're on oral contraceptive pills, even if they're anticoagulated, we would tell them they have to stop it. And that would be a mistake because then the patient's going to start, as you said, having really heavy periods. So it's great to know that at least the best evidence we have says that it's it's okay to continue them on their anticoagulation and the oral contraceptive pills probably not the oral contraceptive pills without the anticoagulation. That seems bad. Yeah. Yeah. And actually (laughs) I like to stop the oral contraceptive pills, um, a month before they come off the anticoagulation because the increased risk sticks around for a while. It doesn't go away right when you stop them. So, you know, they come into the ER with their DVT or their PE, 
they're low risk. So you send them home, continue the OCPs while they're on the anticoagulation. And then when you have the follow-up at one month or two months or whatever, that's your time when you need to transition. And I think, you know, we're really good about thinking about like risks and benefits when it comes to procedures and things like that. But I think a lot of times when it comes to birth control, people just think of like the risks and they don't, you know, Mm -hmm. the risks of being on the birth control and the alternative isn't nothing. It's pregnancy. And pregnancy is a super high risk state for VTE, much higher than birth control pills. So, you know, I think it's really important to be thoughtful about that and also make sure that you're getting that patient on a different form of contraception. So you don't just stop them at one month, you offer the lark, you offer progestin only pills are also safe, but you have to take them at the same time every day. And we just got done talking about how taking a pill twice a day is really hard. Um, taking, and it's like within one hour for it to be effective. So it's not super effective contraception, but you could switch to that. You could switch to the Lark. Depo, I don't like in patients who have a history of clots because it actually does increase your risk of clots, but you got a lot of options. You can just wait to make that transition until you've gotten them through starting anticoagulation. I just wanted to, uh, make sure I'm understanding the, when you're, when you're saying LARC, the choices for that would be an IUD with levonorgestrel or an implantable device, like in the forearm, wherever they, they put those devices. And then is there any other, anything else in that category at this time that we, that you would consider in that category? Those are really it. Um, and they do, you know, the, the IUDs come in a variety of options. So there's the copper IUD, which I already said, I don't like, but there's different doses of levonorgestrel with, um, different, um, IUDs. And so there are a few options within those categories, but those are, you know, the long acting reversible ones. And then one last thing was that I always thought of the progestin pills as not promoting clotting. And I think you were saying that that's, that holds true. But the the shot, the long acting progesterone shot, does have some increased risk, and that's a that was at least in the past a pretty common one. I think it's becoming less common now because the I, patients always complain to me about bleeding if they've been on it. That's at least my my small sample size. Yeah, yeah, it does increase the risk of thrombosis, and it's hard because I mean we we like to push this progesterone doesn't cause clots, progesterone doesn't cause clots. Uh, because we want people to be comfortable prescribing contraception. And we think we don't know for sure. We think it's just that big, huge dose of of progestin that you're getting with the Depo-Provera, that that might be what does it. And again, if they're on anticoagulation, that's fine. You might get a hematoma with your IM injection. So be thoughtful about that. But yeah, for some reason, that's the one progestin only one that uh, can still increase risk of clots. Thank you. Yeah. It's a bummer because it's actually, it's interesting that you had patients with bleeding on it because a, a huge percentage of patients will have no bleeding on it. So I think maybe they're, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, spotting is, is like yeah. what they say, not necessarily like heavy bleeding, but the, saying they were spotting and they, yeah, a, a, but just a bunch of people, it, maybe that's just the ones that stick in my mind are the ones that complain about it. Yeah. And that probably is the case. That's also the case with the etonogestrel implant. It goes on the, just slightly under the skin in the upper arm and breakthrough bleeding is common with that as well. And so it does still decrease the overall blood loss, which is really your goal when you're treating heavy menstrual bleeding, but that breakthrough bleeding can be super annoying for some women. Can I ask a follow-up question related? We, uh, Dr. Michael Strife, Strife? Hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 I was like, wait a minute. I, I'm th- I was like, is, am I confusing him with like a, a musician or somebody? Anyway, uh, who's the REM guy, Paul? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Michael Stipe. Stipe. Okay. Of, who is sound- not a hematologist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Dr. Michael Stipe. He mentioned that there's a HER do two score. Do you, do you use that clinically? Like if you're trying to decide if someone, uh, I know this patient had a provoked clot, but if it's a young woman with an unprovoked clot, do you find that helpful? Do you have, uh, do you do like D-dimer levels in these people before you take them off anticoagulation? Yeah, that's a good question. And it is a good score. And, you know, maybe I should use it more than I do. I've really moved away from using D-dimers in general uh, because we've actually found that they're not helpful, particularly in men. It really doesn't differentiate well between people who are going to clot and not clot. Um, and actually, you know, having a, a woman do the test and then, you know, come in later can be a little bit complicated, but it's very much a valid tool. 
Uh, and it's certainly a good one to consider. I would say the majority of clots that I see, though, are provoked in, in menstruating individuals, pregnancy, birth control, something else. So it doesn't come a whole lot up a whole lot in clinical practice, but it's definitely a valid tool. All right. So we've talked about patients with heavy bleeding, patients who have developed a DVT or an indication for therapeutic anticoagulation. For our last case, another facet of all these discussions. So avoid a clot is a 30-year-old patient with a, a strong, very strong family history of venous thromboembolic disease who is not currently on any contraceptions, but is seeking counseling. She's interested in initiating something. Um, she shares that her mother had a DVT at the age of 25 in the early 70s while on OCPs. And she remembers hearing something like her, her mom's OCPs were, are not what's on the market these days, but she doesn't know the differences. And she's also wondering that should she develop a VTE while she's on contraception, would she have to change it? Like she wants to kind of settle on something and stay on it and not have to switch gears should she develop a clot. So in someone who has not ever declared a clot, but, but is at risk, or is she at risk based on her mother's history? How would you counsel about initiating contraception? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I would say she's at risk. So when I think about family history and risk for clot, I'm really thinking about first degree relatives. So, you know, if you just say, does anybody in your family have a history? They'll be like, well, my cousin's brother's uncle had, so I don't care about that. So I say parents, siblings, and children. And if one of those had a clot, then I consider the patient at high risk for having a clot. And so in that case, I would probably steer in general away from combined hormonal contraceptives, pills, patches, ring. Um, I'd steer away from Depo-Provera. And again, we're landing really in the Lark territory here because I think the progestin pills, they, they're okay, but they're just not as effective for contraception. And again, you know, for somebody who just wants to like pick one and be on it, like then you have, you know, three to five years with the Lark that you don't have to worry about it. Now, if she said, I'm, I hate needles, I hate procedures, not going to do either of those then, you know, we would have just have a really honest discussion about, again, risk of clot with pregnancy is higher than with birth control. So I would say it doesn't take it, you know, it's not an absolute contraindication. So um, in the seventies, the birth control pills had these ungodly amounts of estrogen, like 50 micrograms. Uh, it was awful. And so, yeah, she's right. The, the options that we have now are way safer. And so you know, for somebody like that, I would recommend that like the minimum amount of, of estrogen. So like 20 micrograms, I think there's some pills that even have 10 micrograms. Uh, and then in general, the second generation birth control pills are safer than the third generation, which is not super meaningful in either internal medicine or hematology, I don't think, but essentially, you know, the, the first generation pills are the ungodly amounts of estrogen. The second generation are the safest the third generation are the ones that they really were working on trying to combat some of the kind of androgenic effects of birth control. And so they, um, they have uh, gestadine um, or desogestrel, I think are the ones they have. So levonorgestrel is the preferred progestin. So you could put her on the lowest risk ones, counsel her about risk, tell her symptoms of DVT, PE, get care right away. Talk about the fact that she shouldn't stop her birth control, even if somebody tells her to, as long as she's getting anticoagulated. And the other thing that I would not do is I would not test for any inherited hypercoagulable disorders. It's not helpful. It gives false senses of security or, you know, abnormal fear. So probably most blood clots, we have some kind of genetic predisposition to. We just don't know how to test for all of them. And the ones that we know to test for really aren't actually all that informative possible exceptions when it comes to pregnancy, but that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. So um, <laughs> don't test for those things. We're not getting into antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, if that's what you're hinting no. at. <laughs> no, that's actually not inherited. So um, okay. there See, Matt, some... you have to open that can of worms. You can even help I told him not to bring oh. it up. We were doing the show prep. He's like, are we going to talk about it? I was like, I don't think so, Matt. Um, so let's say she doesn't have any family history. And again, she is just, she's being proactive. She's doing her due diligence. She's getting counseling. And she says like, I'm, I'm interested in pills, patches, or the ring based on my sister's experience, my best friend's experience. What is the differences? Like, I, I remember hearing like, don't do the ring, don't do the patch when I was, you know, in college and med school. So are, is there a different yeah. clot risk? 
there's a slightly different risk, but if you're talking about somebody whose baseline risk is low, then it's not necessarily a meaningful difference. Um, and I wouldn't even worry about the differences in, you know, second versus third generation and somebody who doesn't have a high risk. I think whatever is going to work for her, whatever she's going to find the easiest to remember, uh, whatever, you know, she's most comfortable with, just give her what she'll take. I mean, even in a patient like this, like the push for the, for the lark is that it's going to be the most effective. Like you don't miss, you don't miss your IUD because you went on a trip and forgot it or because you are vomiting and you can't take any pills or because it fell off, uh, you know, when you were having a really intense workout, like it's, it's still kind of foolproof. So I still push for that, but whatever she wants, we give her whatever she wants. And then we've talked about the oral contraceptive pills sort of in that capacity, but also for, for menses management, I, or OCPs are, mm-hmm. are not only prescribed for contraception. And I want to get right. that out there. But let's say you are also seeing her aunt who mm-hmm. is interested in, in estrogen or hormonal therapy for menopausal symptoms. How is that a different discussion in terms of VTE risk? And should she actually be prescribed these agents? Yeah. So, I mean, we know from, you know, women's health studies that it does increase the risk. So specifically, if you're looking at estrogen and progestin together in an oral form, that's definitely going to increase the risk. So me as a hematologist, I always say the lowest dose for the shortest time possible. My friends in gynecology are moving away from that. And I really need to pin them down and ask them why, but there's like renewed enthusiasm for HRT. And so, you know, if if there's no other reason to think there's increased risk, you know, I think kind of, you know, it's fine to do something like that, but actually estrogen by itself without progestin doesn't really seem to increase the risk. We don't really understand why that is, but it's a very small population of women who can actually do that. You actually have to have no uterus in order to do that because of course, unopposed estrogen increases your risk of, of uterine cancer. So she'd had a hysterectomy. She could do just estrogen. And then, you know, anything that you can give that's not, um, that's, you know, that's topical. So, you know, vaginal estrogen, if that's the primary symptom, that's great. No increased risk. Even transdermal estrogen doesn't really have an increased risk. So those are my favorites if they do the job, but yeah, it's, it's what's, what's going to work for the patient. What's going to control symptoms. All right. So this has been fantastic. I think this has just been incredibly informative and educational for, for us as internists. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to kind of get this out in the open and really chip away at some of the big themes, not just the clinical pearls in this women's health topic. Um, my last question before we, we wrap up, uh, you know, we talked about sexism and racism in medicine and how a lot of our reference ranges cause, cause more harm than good. I read an interesting pearl that we've come to accept a lower reference range hematocrit for women. And it seems that's like, that's the mic drop moment of like why this topic matters. And I'm wondering sort of what your perspective on that is. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of drives me crazy. I mean, there's really no reason that women should have lower hemoglobins than hematocrits. I mean, you can maybe make some argument that testosterone maybe increases it, but that doesn't really, that doesn't really hold true. And we know that like a significant proportion of women are going to have iron deficiency and are going to potentially have anemia. I just want to point out that you can have iron deficiency with or without anemia and Mm -hmm. it can still be symptomatic. That's like a whole other misnomer that you have to have iron, you have to have anemia to be symptomatic. But I mean, the way we determine normal ranges is that we just, you know, take people out of the population and we check their numbers and and we say, okay, this is the healthy range, but probably not all those women had normal irons. They probably weren't all healthy. So, you know, I don't know that it changes my clinical practice from day to day, because again, I check a ferritin in everybody. And so that's a way you can combat sexism is by checking ferritins in menstruating individuals, whatever their hemoglobin is. So there we go. Paul, it's hard not to think that Stuart is just like, he's just like bolt upright wherever he is in a cold sweat right now. <laughs> it's like a dog that hears a sound outside, but can't quite determine what it is. Like, I, like how he's jerking his head around, he's losing his mind, scratching at the door. Yeah, no, I, I think oh all of that. <laughs> uh, well, on that, <laughs> thank you for that. On that note, any other takeaway points for our listeners or anything else you'd like to plug? 
you know, I think we've really hit the high points, like get comfortable talking about periods, check ferritins, prescribe tranexamic acid. Um, I would make a plug. There's this really great society called FWGBD or Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders. And there's a whole movement to really address this issue by having combined clinics where hematologists and gynecologists work together and as well as adolescent um, healthcare providers. And so there are, you know, centers all over the country, probably in the majority of, I would say, you know, universities where they actually have clinics, you know, they're usually pulled into a hemophilia treatment center, but we have clinics where women can actually see both kinds of providers. And I think it's really a great setting to provide good care, to have really seamless interactions. And so definitely, you know, think about that if you're referring a patient, see if there's a center near you. We will fade that into the outro. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. This is great. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to the great Dr. Avital Oglasser for writing and producing this episode. Also to Kate Grant and Maddie Morgan for helping with post-production. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And I think that's everyone, Paul. Did I miss anyone? Nicely done. No, I'm impressed. <laughs> Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Avital Yehudit Oglasser. We would be remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank the great Claire Morgan of Not Relief for editing our audio. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Head there today and create your account. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Put a bug in my ear and I was like, oh my gosh, this would be fantastic. This is so high yield. It's a great, I mean, half of the population has a uterus. So actually 51%. So we, we got to think about it.